Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long journey to this moment. Thank you so much. I am naturally indebted to Truly, truly great. And the Oscar goes to... Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's Kayla, our producer. Howdy. Hello. Oh, wow. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Are you ready to do this podcast? Is that your Diane Keaton impersonation? That's my Diane Keaton. Anyhow. Oh, wow. (laughs) Gee. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Well, it's actually we me. Are. I know you thought I was Diane Keaton. Mm. Well, if you haven't guessed by now, we are talking about the 50th Academy Awards and the 50th Best Picture winner, Annie Hall. That's right. That's right. Wow, 50. 50. A milestone. Yeah, crazy. And we're almost up to 2 years of doing this. Yeah, yeah, two years. In April. More than 50 episodes because of our uh, bi-weekly episodes, but... But we have made it to number 50. (sighs) Wow, 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 wow. Can't believe that. And what a momentous film to discuss for the 50th. Yeah, it's a funny film because it's, uh, I don't know, it's one of those films that isn't like the most epic film. So it doesn't no, feel like... No, definitely not compared to all the other <laughs> uh, epic big picture winners. Right. It's kind of like a funny choice for this momentous milestone, but still good. Mm-hmm. And we will get all into it soon. Uh, but first, we bring you Penny News. That's right. The news about Penny. A uh, pup date. So we don't know if we've discussed this before, but it has been happening more frequently as of late. Yes. Um, but Penny is a guard dog. That's right. She's our protector. But she's also a pack animal. <laughs> In the sense that she thinks she's a part of our pack. Yeah, she is. And we're part of her pack. <laughs> and uh, when dogs are a part of a pack, they always protect each other when another dog has to uh, use the restroom. <laughs> when another dog is vulnerable. <laughs> So Penny must think we're vulnerable dogs. Yeah. So basically, we've come to realize that when we go to the restroom, whether we're like taking a shower or whatever, she always has to guard. She has to come by. She like tries to nuzzle the door open if it's kind of closed. She has to sit there and like sometimes she watches you if you're like showering or something. But if you're not, she'll turn and she'll like put her back towards you and make sure nobody else bothers you. And she also will sit in such a way, too, I've noticed, where, like, she can see you, but she mostly can see, like... Anyone else who's coming. Anyone else who's coming. Yeah. Yeah, it's really sweet. I, like, I had sort of started to notice her doing this, and I was like, Penny, like, let me have a moment. (laughs) You don't have to be here. But then she was just kept doing it and doing it, and now I'm like, all right, my little protector angel. What would she do if there was something bad that happened? Oh, probably nothing. She'd probably just bark, bark, bark. Her main line of defense is being an alarm system. That's true. She's not like the attack dog. That's what we got Bosley for. Oh, Bosley. (laughs) Penny sounds the alarm, though. 
Bosley could care less if we were in the bathroom or not. No, honestly, this isn't the Bosley news, but sometimes Bosley goes and does his own thing and he'll be in a room all by himself and I'll be doing something different. And 20 minutes later, I'll be like, where's Bosley? Go check on him. And he's just sleeping upstairs. Mm -hmm. He's counting on Penny to protect him. That's right. He knows that she'll alert him if he's needed. (laughs) What a good team. Yeah. Good job, Penny. Well, shall we get to this illustrious 50th ceremony? Yeah. And boy, oh boy, have I got a lot to get through today. So we are going to get right into it. So today, as we've mentioned a couple times, we're celebrating the 50th Academy Awards. Huzzah! They were held on April 3rd, 1978 at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. They were hosted by Bob Hope. In honor of the 50th anniversary. Um, this is his 19th time hosting and, and his final time. Yeah. There's been a little bit of a gap between this and his last time mm. hosting. Um, but because it's the 50th, it's a big milestone. They wanted to bring him back. He's the singular host for this. And they do a bunch of like celebratory things throughout. So they figured, you mm-hmm. know, they didn't need to have a bunch of different people like managing the responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause as I've talked about the last couple of years, um, really like this seventies decade, it's been like a three to four person job where they each take different bits of the show. Right. Um, so we're back to the uh, old tradition of uh, Bob Hope coming in and doing his jokey joke thing. Hmm. Again, these were produced by Howard Koch and directed by Marty Pasita, two of our classic guys. We trust to do the ceremony. So they're handling the big boy. Nice. Lots of fun things happened. There were um, appearances. So uh, I'm, I mean, we're going to get to it at some point. But uh, this is the year that Star Wars comes out. And so there were appearances at the ceremony by C-3PO and R2-D2 to uh-huh. help make a, or to help uh, give awards out. Um, Mickey Mouse made an appearance for his 50th birthday as well. Oh, wow. Because he, I just kind of forgot, he and the Academy are the same age. Mm-hmm. So there's that. He came out, they did like a little birthday thing for him. Oh, that's funny. They, uh, he helped present as well. I also just thought it was funny. I was watching these and it's, they haven't really had characters come out and then do like um, a pre recorded voice track. So they were interacting with Mickey Mouse and like Mickey Mouse is talking back and there's like a script going and like the way they do it, like Disneyland or Disney World or something. Hmm. Um, And the same thing with C-3PO and R2-D2, like they have sounds and they're talking to Mark Hamill as he's giving out the award and that kind of thing, Um, which in the past they've had like Snow White and Mm -hmm. the Seven Dwarves and Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and all these characters come out and like dance around or something. But they don't really do anything. They're kind of just quiet. So just a funny little thing that's going on now. So lots of stuff was pretty remarkable during this ceremony. Um, As we talked about, Annie Hall does win this year. Um, And Woody Allen became the first person to receive nominations for acting, directing, and screenwriting for the same film since Orson Welles, who had previously achieved this feat in 1941, Citizen Kane. Hmm. Um, so there you go. Woody Allen also became the first director to win an Academy Award for a film that he starred in. As a director. As the director of yeah. that film. So huh. isn't that because he won the Academy Award for Best Director? Mm-hmm. Um, he obviously does not win Best Actor in this film, but no other director has directed themselves in their winning film. Yes. Computing? Computing. All right, great. Uh the other person who could have and <laughs> flopped uh, marvelously, of course, is Laurence Olivier. Yes. Yep. 
And I feel like it's something um, people like Bradley Cooper are striving to get. I, he was definitely hoping for that star is born moment. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's hard. It's definitely a hard thing to accomplish. Or Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck. Yes, yes, that's true. <laughs> Argo controversy. <anyone? laughs> uh, Woody Allen also became the fourth person in Oscar history to be nominated in a single year as both an actor and a screenwriter. The other oh, people cool. who've accomplished this feat were Charlie Chaplin in 1940, Orson Welles in 1941, and Sylvester Stallone in 1976. Mm. So I like just talked about this very recently. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that is a like feels like a more rare tandem than director actor, but it is just as common. I think all these things are funny. I feel like there are so many directors that write their own screenplays. So I mm-hmm. like I'm just kind of baffled that so few of them have one. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, moving right along, at age 30, Richard Dreyfus becomes the youngest man to ever win the Best Actor Award. At age 30? Yes. That's crazy. Yes. Um, <laughs> he will lose this honor in uh, about 25 years when a new spry young chicken 29-year-old, <laughs> Adrian Brody, will uh, take that crown and hang on to it till now. It's so bizarre to me that... Like, that just is so old for the youngest winner. Yeah. Yeah. So weird. It's a very strange stat, and I don't really know why, but... I mean, there's definitely a bias against young men in Mm -hmm. Hollywood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And as we know, typically because of misogyny, there are much older men paired with much younger women. Totally. Totally. So leads of films are always older men. Mm -hmm. Also, just percentage-wise, the Academy is dominated by older male members mm-hmm. and older male members are going to vote for their peers. So it's a lot harder to get the support as and a younger Traditionally, actor. it's also tougher to become established as a younger male. Like typically your prime time as a male actor <laughs> is like 30 to 45. Right. Whereas like <laughs> your prime for a female actor is like 20 to 35. <laughs> What a fun world. Thank you, Hollywood. (laughs) So moving along again. Uh, This year, the movie The Turning Point became the most nominated film in Oscar history without a win. Um, And this record still holds. Um, It's currently tied, though, with The Color Purple, which will have the same experience in 1985. Both films have 11 nominations and zero wins. That is so shocking to have that many and like not get a single win yeah there's some kind of disparity going on there like i don't i don't understand and it hasn't really happened in our lifetime so like it's hard to compare like i mean i've seen the color purple but like you know it would be interesting to experience this in the context of like oh this film gets so many things right it's like well what is the general consensus around the film yeah i don't know but also, like, The Color Purple is so, like, held up as such a great film. I don't know. It's just so baffling to me. Well, and to me, it's uh, an indicator of maybe, like, wanting to give the honor of a nomination, but not expecting it to be better than the other things that are nominated. I don't know. Yeah. But for, like, 11? That's a lot. You give someone 11 nominations, you're assuming they're winning at least one. So, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Moving on to some of the other stuff that's going on. Um, So Vanessa Redgrave won for her role in Julia, um, and she becomes the only actress in history to win Best Supporting Actress for playing the title role. 
Oh, interesting. Isn't that so interesting? I didn't really realize that. Um, mm. But yeah, because Julia is the name of the film and the character she played. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Interesting. Yeah. Um, also, it would be another 21 years until the next romantic comedy wins Best Picture, mm. which will be Shakespeare in Love. So Annie wow. Hall winning is kind of a bit of an anomaly, especially during this time period. I mean, we haven't seen a lot of this like smaller romantic comedy win. Um, we talked about it, of course, with It Happened One Night. Um, Marty. Marty. Yeah. The Apartment. The Apartment, which I don't know how. I guess those are both romantic comedies. They're like indie. Marty is <laughs> definitely a romantic comedy. I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But anyways, it's not a very common genre to win. So. Well, and comedy in general doesn't win. I mean, the last comedy before this was Tom Jones, which is like. Yes. Kind of a down year. (laughs) Well, and uh, to be honest, I wouldn't even classify. I mean, is Shakespeare in Love considered a rom-com? I mean, I feel like it's a romance. I guess it's true. Yeah. I don't know. Because a lot of people say that this is the last comedy that has won. Gotcha. Like, period. I guess I could see that. Yeah. I'm not really sure. It's been a minute since I've seen Shakespeare in Love. Yeah. I mean, it's not. its intention is not necessarily comedy, but it's its really bizarre. I don't know. In the 70s, comedy changes so much because of stand-up comedy sure. becoming such a big thing that, yeah. like, most comedy in the 70s is, like lampoon type Mm. (laughs) growths you know Mm -hmm. i I don't know and so it's just not seen as highbrow anymore yeah the way that like comedy was in the 40s and 50s it was so specific and so like intentional yeah the comedians were like carol burnett and like (laughs) lucille ball and they were held up with like such high esteem (laughs) they're like they're among the glamorous elite of hollywood right yeah, and then in the seventies, you get Chevy honorable Chase. people like Chevy Chase. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and kind of talking about this weird little bubble we're in. One thing that I picked up on, and I didn't see a lot, but I saw a couple of think pieces about this. So I was like, okay, it's worth mentioning. Is that each of the five Best Picture nominees feature plots that are primarily driven by a principal female character? Which mm-hmm. is a very just interesting turn in what is being nominated. So we, the movies that are nominated for Best Picture are Annie Hall, The Goodbye Girl, which is about the main woman, Julia, which is about two women's friendships, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, which is about, well, it starts with them rescuing Princess Leia, and she's obviously sending out her droids to alert Obi-Wan Kenobi and all that kind of stuff. Um, the Turning Point, which is, again, about two women's conflict. Which just is a very interesting change in style and change in the kinds of movies that are being appreciated by the Academy. Well, and one thing that I was going to mention, too, in that vein is typically, as we have mentioned before, Best Actress and Best Picture are like the least likely awards to overlap. Sure. But this year, all of the Best Actress nominees are in Best Picture nominees. Mm -hmm. Where, like, that just, like, doesn't happen. Yeah, it's very, very uncommon. Um, And I was, of course, going to mention that with Diane Keaton playing the title character of Annie Hall, which, mm-hmm. again, Best Actress and Best Picture are not often correlated. And here we have the title character winning. So mm-hmm. just pretty interesting. I mean, and part of it could be just the social change that's happening. People are more interested in seeing movies about women at this point. Um, well, there's such a radical, like, I mean, one of the biggest, like, waves of 
new feminism yeah, is <laughs> currently afoot <laughs> in the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. There's that. <laughs> another just interesting thing that happened this year, another like rare trend to happen, is that um, none of the five nominees in the best art direction category for set direction were period movies. Um, oh. They four were set in the present time and one was in the future, aka Star Wars. Uh huh. Which again, just wait, but Star Wars happened a long time ago oh, in a galaxy far, right. far I away. Forgot. I guess that is a <laughs> ancient times. <laughs> <laughs> All right, <laughs> one happened in space in an unknown era. Yes. Okay. <laughs> oh, brother. The last thing I just want to mention about the ceremony is um, a cute thing that happened, which is um, one of the performers for the evening was Debbie Reynolds, uh-huh. which was a special appearance because her daughter, Carrie Fisher, was uh, involved in the ceremony quite a bit for mm. Star Wars. So fun. And it was her first time being connected to the Academy, and her mother has a long history with the Academy, and so there you go. Good for them. Yeah, very sweet. So uh, now, moving right along, uh, there are some controversies. No. Some things that uh, kind of went wrong. Uh, the first kind of thing I wanted to, to mention that, you know, this one is less of a big deal, but it is a big deal to some. And I couldn't really parcel out whether this was like the kind of thing where it's like, we should be upset about this. Or if it's just the kind of thing where it's like, oh, people just did whatever they did. So mm. uh, one of the things that did happen this year is that Margaret Booth was given an honorary award. Um, and when she was given this award, she was given a sort of like half standing ovation. Um, And some of the things about this that were very strange was that there were people who like were so enthusiastic about this award and they jumped to their feet and they were like very actively applauding her. People like Shirley MacLaine, Greer Garson, Mickey Rooney, Richard Burton, um, Neil Simon, Richard Dreyfuss, they all jumped to their feet, were enthusiastically applauding her while a lot of the other audience members just stayed in their seat, kind of didn't really respond to this. Hmm. Um, People like Diane Keaton and Robert Blake. And so post-ceremony, there was some discussion about why this happened. They were kind of called out for not supporting her and that kind of thing. So I don't really know why that was such a bad thing, but it's something that is like kind of like a little pin in the academy history so i just thought it was worth mentioning Hmm. i i don't really i couldn't really get the context it doesn't seem like there's necessarily malicious intent involved in that but because some people were so enthusiastically supportive and it was a much deserved honorary award for her extensive work with films and also with the academy Mm -hmm. award-winning films that it makes sense like people like shirley mclean would be very, you know, supportive and um, especially for women, you know, yeah. it's a huge honor and step for women. So, yeah, just like a little strange thing I got to mention. <laughs> Interesting. Um, the next thing that happened that uh, f- bombed big time. Uh, so Debbie Boone gave a performance of the song You Light Up My Life, which was accompanied by schoolgirls that were described They were described in both the program and to the audience as, quote, affiliated with the John Tracy Clinic for the Deaf. And they interpreted Uh the sign language. They interpreted the lyrics in sign language while she performed. But after this happened, there were a lot of complaints that their signing was incomprehensible, that it didn't make any sense. Um, And then it revealed after the fact that the girls were not deaf, that they had been taught rudimentary signing specifically for this performance. Um, So basically what ended up happening was that these girls were actually from Torrance Elementary School in Torrance, California, 
And they were just kind of signing the gibberish that they had sort of been taught beforehand because they were not deaf students and mm-hmm. they did not have signing experience. But the girls that had originally been asked that were actually from the clinic were unavailable to do this, especially because of some like legal issues That's that had happened. That's what I was going to guess. Yes. So they were not able to attend. They'd already set this whole thing up. So they're like, it's going to be fine. We're going to just teach some other young elementary school girls how to sign. And then it's still going to have the emotional impact. Well, and, and it was probably like somebody on the staff, their daughter went to Torrance Elementary. And yeah. they were like, uh, I'll just get my daughter's class to come. Yeah, yeah, it'll be <laughs> fine. I'll call the principal. We'll, we'll set up a whole day. They'll do an hour of teaching it and they'll be good to go. They'll be so cute. No one will even notice. Yikes. Except for the people that rely on sign language. <laughs> So, of course, this prompted a pretty big backlash, both for the performers and for the Academy. Um, The Alliance for Deaf Artists protested. Hmm. They had a bunch of issues. So, bad, bad, bad. All around bad. The next, uh, and the last thing I want to mention today, Mm -hmm. is uh, the big takeaway from this particular ceremony, which is Vanessa Redgrave's speech. So she wins Best Supporting Actress for Julia, as I mentioned. Um, She received a lot of backlash about this nomination because people were not comfortable with her as a person. Um, The previous year, she had been a very outspoken supporter of the Palestinians and their struggle to end conflict with Israel. In 1977, she had also produced and appeared in the film The Palestinian, which followed the activities of Palestine Liberation Organization, or PLO, in Lebanon, um, which is an organization that at the time was defined as a terrorist organization by Israel. Mm. Um, So the film was criticized by a lot of Jewish groups because it was perceived as anti-Israel. It had a bit of a slant that way. Members of the Jewish Defense League picketed outside. Um, They ended up picketing at the Academy Awards when she arrived. Um, Meanwhile, while they're picketing, people from PLO also arrived with their own flags in support of her. So as she's coming in, this is happening. She had to be snuck in through the back uh, in an ambulance oh so that people didn't know it was her uh, in a secret entrance. Um, some of the protesters burned an effigy of her oh outside. <laughs> so basically, that's how the evening starts is with this controversy Boy. happening. She gets to the stage. She wins her award. She goes to give her speech. They're probably like, man, if only she just didn't win. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> And naturally, she has to address things in her speech. Um, so I'm going to just read it because it's not long. And I feel like I, I don't want to say I'm in support of her at all or not in support of her at all. I don't really know what to do with this. But I do want to say what she said instead of trying to, like, sum it up because I may not do so well. Sure. Um, so she says, quote, My dear colleagues, I thank you very much for this tribute to my work. I think that Jane Fonda and I have done the best work of our lives. I think it's due to our director, Fred Zinnemann, blah, blah, blah. Applause. And I also think it's in part because we believed and we believe in what we're expressing. Two out of millions who gave their lives and were prepared to sacrifice everything in the fight against fascist and racist Nazi Germany. And I salute you and I pay tribute to you. And I think you should be very proud in the last weeks you've stood firm and you've refused to be intimidated by the threats of a small bunch of Zionist hoodlums, which is followed by gasps from the audience, Mm. boos, and also clapping whose behavior, again, booing, 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 finally it quiets down, whose behavior is an insult to the stature of Jews all over the world and their great and heroic record of struggle against fascism and oppression. Then there was applause. 
I salute that record and I salute all of you for having stood firm and dealt a final blow against the period when Nixon and McCarthy launched a worldwide witch hunt against those who tried to express in their lives and their work the truth in which they believed in. Again, booze and hissing. I salute you and I thank you and I pledge that I will continue to fight against anti-Semitism and fascism. So that's what she says. Very confusing. The main takeaway is that she... Un- she called them an insult. Um, and that's what people, that's what's printed in the papers the next day. That's what people remember is her saying those words. Um, and so, uh, yeah, basically this uh, sets the tone off in a terrible way for the Academy. Um, two hours later, <laughs> when it's his turn to uh, announce the winners for best yeah, screenplay. Best supporting actress is like, one of it's the first one of the two earlier awards. ones. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is, like, not Best very supporting far. actor and actress are usually, like, in the first five. <laughs> so two hours later, <laughs> Patty Chayefsky is going to be announcing the winners for Best Screenplay. Mm. He is very perturbed by what he considered, quote, cracks against Jews. Um, at, and so he replies when he gets up uh, to give out these awards. He says, quote, before I get on to writing awards, there's a little matter I'd like to tidy up. At least if I expect to live with myself tomorrow morning, I would like to say personal opinion, of course, that I'm sick and tired of people exploiting the occasion of the Academy. Loud applause for the propagation of their own personal political propaganda. Loud applause. I would like to suggest to Miss Redgrave that her winning an Academy Award is not a pivotal moment in history, does not require a, pro- a proclamation, and a simple thank you would have sufficed. Oh Loud applause. Wait, he wouldn't like the Academy Awards today. No. Oh, my word. No, no, no. Um, so... Anyways, people in the industry were very against her. They could not believe what she said about Jews. She And of course, also, you have to remember too, Annie Hall's the best picture winner. Yeah. It's it's a Woody Allen night. I mean, there's it's very strange. Um this is considered one of the low points of the Academy Awards. This is another one of those really controversial moments that is really pointed against a very specific group of people. Um it was funny enough after the ceremony, she went to dinner uh, alone. Nobody would go with her. She was mm. accompanied by her bodyguards and celebrated by herself uh, because nobody would join her. Mm. Uh, she was that ostracized because of her comments. Um, and of course, it's hard because it's um, it's just hard to know what to do with people who want to uh, speak their mind and talk about things in a very public forum and you have people who don't want that present at all and you have people who think it's essential mm-hmm. so yeah uh and of course i don't really know what to do with this we've talked about this and it's going to become something that becomes more and more and more and more present mm-hmm. uh, which is people using the academy awards as like a way to talk about things um mm-hmm. and in a way i think that makes a lot of sense because uh you have a platform uh but also it's a night of awards and you can't just say things that are going to be divisive or offensive or whatever, but mm-hmm. I don't know. So those are the things that happened. Oopsies. Yikes. Big yikes. Rough night. So anyways, um, that's what I have to share about this ceremony today. Uh, and to wrap up this little section, I'll just go through and talk about our Academy Award winners today. Mm-hmm. Of course, best picture goes to Annie Hall. Best director goes to Woody Allen for Annie Hall. Best Actor goes to Richard Dreyfuss for The Goodbye Girl. Best Actress goes to Diane Keaton for Annie Hall. Which, cute. Very good for her. Mm-hmm. And, of oh, I didn't mention this. There's also always been a little bit of, like, insinuation that she dressed as her character for the Academy Awards because she comes to the Academy Awards dressed 
very quirky. Mm. She looks very Annie Hall. Yeah. Um, she is not technically dressed as her character. She is dressed in her own way. She's just relying on the fashion sense. I think she's creating a little bit of a brand. And I have to imagine that Annie Hall has a lot to do with who she is as a person, too. Yeah. So, you know, there's that. I couldn't find any concrete proof that she came dressed as her character or, like, made a mistake mm. about it. Best Supporting Actor goes to Jason Robards for Julia. Best Supporting Actress goes to Vanessa Redgrave for Julia. Best Screenplay written directly for the screen based on factual material or on story material not previously published or produced original screenplay, goes to Annie Hall. Best screenplay based on material from another medium goes to Julia. Best foreign language film goes to Madame Rosa. Best documentary feature goes to Who Are the DeBolts and Where Did They Get 19 Kids? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Sounds like a really great documentary I would like to watch. Best documentary short subject goes to Gravity Is My Enemy. Best live action short film goes to I'll Find a Way. Best Animated Short Film goes to The Sandcastle. Best Original Score goes to... Star Wars. Star Wars. Yep. Best Original Song Score and its Adaption or Adaption Score goes to A Little Night Music. Best Original Song goes to You Light Up My Life from You Light Up My Life. And mm-hmm. I also want to mention here that there is a nomination given to one of my very favorite movies, The Rescuers, mm-hmm. for Someone's Waiting for You. Yeah, good song. Yeah, cute, great, great movie that we... Uh, May or may not have named our dog after. I'm going to mention it. Oh. Best sound goes to Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Best costume design goes to Star Wars. Best art direction goes to Star Wars. Best cinematography goes to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Best film editing goes to Star Wars. And best visual effects goes to Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Um, As I mentioned, there's an honorary award given to Margaret Booth. Uh, There is also a Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award given to Charlton Heston. Uh The Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award, which it's been a little bit since we've really had one of these, is given to Walter Mirisch. Oh, Um, wow. Good for him. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And then there are two special achievement awards given out because of the incredible achievements of both Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So Ben Burt is given an award for the creation of the alien, creature, and robot voices in Star Wars. Mm. Pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And Frank Warner is given uh, the same award for sound effects editing in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm, Wow. So that is what's going on today. Unfortunately, you know, we've gotten so far in these Academy Awards that you can't just have a simple ceremony anymore. Mm. It's got to be up and down and up and down and up and down. So So true. Yeah. Uh, that's what I have to share today. So uh, here we can take a little break. And uh, when we get back, you can tell us about Annie Hall. And we're back. Time for talking about 1977. All right. Starting, of course, with some famous births. We have Born This Year in 77, Orlando Bloom, Bobby (gasps) Moynihan, Kerry Washington, Ike Barinholtz, James Vanderbeek, Jessica Chastain, Michael Fassbender, John Cena, Cal Penn, Zachary Quinto, Liv Tyler, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Tom Hardy, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and Colin Hanks. Wow, strange. I never, like, it's always strange to me how old Colin Hanks actually is. Like, I feel like he should be our age for some reason. Mm, yeah. I don't know. Um, Some big debuts this year in 77. We have Dan Aykroyd, Mel Gibson, Helen Hunt, 
Meryl Streep, Sigourney Weaver, Robin Williams, and Rita Wilson. Wow, nice. So then to deaths this year, um, we have Edward G. Boyle. He was a production designer and art director. Um, He won his only Academy Award for The Apartment. He was the art director for that. Which of course was amazing art yeah, direction, definitely. especially in the, like the office scenes. Yes, we talked about incredible. that a lot. Um, and he had six other nominations for mm. art direction. Um, also this year, Joan Crawford, <laughs> the old guard. Of course, she was an actress. She won Best Actress for Mildred Pierce and was nominated for Possessed and Sudden Fear. Of course, uh, most known on our podcast for. <laughs> Her many foibles and uh, play in the field. She's a glamorous lady. Mm-hmm. Um, She's a tricky lady, too. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we talk about her a lot in the podcast. Yeah. She's from the era when we didn't do Academy Archive, so we never talked super specifically about her. But mm-hmm. yeah. Um. Also this year, Alfred Lunt died. Mm. Uh, of course, he was an actor. He was nominated once for Best Actor, the same year that his wife, Lynn Fontaine, was nominated. Yeah. So that you was ever, very fun. Uh, go see a show at the Lynn Fontaine Theater in mm-hmm. New York. Um, also this year, Elvis Presley died. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. Of course. Thanks we for all his know great who film contributions. Elvis Presley is, <laughs> singer and actor. <laughs> Both Groucho and Gummo Marx died this Aww. year. Uh, two of the famous Marx Brothers, uh, probably the most famous and the least famous. <laughs> Zero Mostel died this year. Mm. Of course, he was an actor. Um, he won three Tony Awards. Yeah, probably best known for Fiddler on the Roof. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's what I know him from, at least. Yeah. Um, incredible stage actor. Oh, yeah. Great performer. Great Didn't have singer. as uh, renowned of a film career as he did on the stage, but... <laughs> A great actor, nonetheless. Mm. Um, also, Bing Crosby. Oh, wow. Oh, we're, man. We're losing oh, no. <laughs> a lot of the greats here. Um, uh, of course, he was an actor and a singer. He won uh, Best Actor for Going My Way. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the first person nominated playing the same character for both times playing the character because, of course, he played the same character in The Bells, in of, the Saint Bells of Saint Mary. Oh, was he old? Uh, pretty old. Okay. It wasn't an untimely death? No. Okay. Oh, man. All these people are getting old. I guess it's been 50 years of doing this. So. Yeah. Which leads us to the next death, Charlie Chaplin. Oh, man. Of course, uh, he was nominated several times in the early days of Hollywood. He was one of the founders of United Artists. Yeah. Um, he received two honorary Academy Awards, and then he received another Academy Award for Best Score. <laughs> <laughs> Very strange. And last but not least on my list, I have director Howard Hawks. Um, he was nominated for Best Director for Sergeant York, and he won an honorary Academy Award because, or he made a lot of contributions to directing. He's just not very well known outside of the industry. Mm. And I think you mentioned that when yeah. you mentioned that he did receive that. Yeah. So that's that. Uh, on to some news bits for 1977. Walt Disney releases its 23rd animated feature, The Rescuers. Hooray! One of our favorites. Um, This film, of course, helps to lead a resurgence in the interest in animated films Mm. and animated films in general. Like, a lot of animation interest had 
waned considerably Ugh. in the 70s. Yeah. There just weren't any big companies who were doing good stuff. Yeah. After the sort of middling success of the Aristocats in 1970, oh, my other favorite, um, Disney created a new animators program to ensure that they could bring in new, young, talented animators so that they would always have a full staff due to many aging out and wanting oh, to retire. Yeah, wow. Um, so this is the first film uh, that like, the first members of that training program worked on with other senior animators. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and many of these, like, new animators would then be the ones who would ensure Disney's success during their Renaissance era. Amazing. That's awesome. So this group of animators that sort of started on this film, of course, became, like, the senior animators in the 90s when everything was happening. That's amazing. What a great film to start with. No wonder (laughs) they showed such promise. (laughs) We have a lot of uh, video news this year. <gasps> video like v- VHS? Uh-huh. <gasps> so Andre Blay started the Video Club of America through his company Magnetic Video. Um, Magnetic Video worked as a company that could duplicate home video and audio. Okay. Because home video cameras have been a thing for a while. Right. Uh, but he decided to purchase distribution rights from 20th Century Fox to distribute their films through his video club through mail subscription. Oh. So oh boy. you thought Netflix was the first one, but it was not. <laughs> um, he advertised his company in TV Guide, among other places, and initially had 9,000 members sign up to receive the first three films, which were Patton, MASH, and The Sound of Music. Oh, my. Um, and they cost about 50 to $75 per tape. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, he paid 20th Century Fox a $300,000 flat rate plus $500,000 yearly um, until they realized that he was being very successful. Mm. Um, and then they decided to buy Magnetic Video in 1979 and decided to make him the CEO of their new 20th Century Fox video. Oh, yeah. That's the way to do it. <laughs> So video is soon to All be right. on the scene here. I'm very excited to those of you listeners who don't know anything about my personal life. I am very into collecting uh, Disney VHS tapes. So mm-hmm. I'm very excited to hear more about that. Um, George Atkinson created the first video rental store in Los Angeles. Ah. So it is called Video Station. He raised capital by charging $50 to $100 for different levels of membership and $10 per day to rent films from his personal collection. Oh, wow. Um, He was threatened with a lawsuit, but was protected by copyright law because it was deemed he was only renting out his own personal property that he owned through Mm, purchase. Yeah. Wow. Um, He eventually opened 400 stores across the country. (laughs) Of his own personal inventory. Uh, Well, I mean, they were owned by his company then at that (laughs) point. Rita Moreno achieves both the triple crown of acting and the EGOT. Yes! uh, By winning her Emmy for acting in The Muppet Show. Hooray! So I just want to mention the awards that got her the triple crown and the EGOT. Of course, in 1961, she won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in West Side Story. Mm -hmm. Um, In 1975, she won the Tony Award for Best Featured Actress in a Play for The Ritz. And then in 1977, she won the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Continuing or Single Performance by a Supporting Actress in a Variety (laughs) or Music for The Muppet Show. Uh, She then ended up winning the next year the same Emmy uh, for The Rockford Files. Mm -hmm. And then her EGOT... 
So I mentioned, of course, uh, the Academy Award and the Emmy. Her Grammy was for Best Recording for Children for The Electric Company. Yes. And you can hear all about her life and career in Academy Archives, Rita Moreno. Yeah. So congrats to her. Yes. Hooray. So that brings us to the 30th Primetime Emmys. Um, This year, All in the Family sets the record for winning Outstanding Comedy Series for the fourth time. So four consecutive years of winning that award. That becomes the most. It's been broken since. The ceremony was interrupted for 30 minutes for a nationally televised address from President Jimmy Carter in which he announced the signing of the Camp David Accords. So that was just a big random thing that happened during that Mm. ceremony. Um, And then we have the uh, 32nd Tony Awards. Da wins Best Play and Ain't Misbehavin' wins Best Musical. Dracula wins Most Innovative Production of a Revival. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) So that's pretty funny. They're still figuring out that award. (laughs) Uh, It beat Tartuffe and Timbuktu. Interesting. (laughs) So that's fun. On the 20th Century had the most nominations with nine and the most wins with five, but did not win Best Musical. Uh, And that brings us to talking about Annie Hall. All right. So, of course, Woody Allen is a character of whom there is a lot of controversy. (laughs) I'm I'm curious to see how you want to get through this today. Um, uh, To be honest, I'm not going to talk about that controversy yet because... To this point in history, in the 70s, he's hasn't done anything that is controversial and hasn't done anything that is worth noting other than his career achievements. Okay. Uh, so we will talk about him again, of course. He has a long history with the Academy. Mm-hmm. Um, so he gets nominated many, many times. So when it comes to that time in history... We can talk about it we then. We can talk about okay. it then. All right. So a recap of Annie Hall. Comedian Alvy Singer thinks back through his relationship with Annie Hall and consequently other moments of his life, trying to understand why their relationship failed. They try to get back together, but it doesn't work out, and they begin a new kind of friendship once they are with other people. <laughs> wow, <laughs> my gosh. That's the shortest one you've ever done. Uh, I don't think it's... Uh, I think I've had a shorter one. The film is not very plot-related. Yes, that's true. Um, but this film had a budget of $4 million and it grossed $44 million this year. It was the 10th highest grossing film of 1977, which is pretty interesting. Um, so I'm just going to mention a little bit of background of Woody Allen, just because we haven't talked about him, and he is such a big player in the comedy scene of this time. Mm. Um, so he was born in New York City in 1935. His birth name was actually Alan Stewart Konigsberg, Um, He was almost immediately interested in comedy and performing and started writing jokes and attempting stand-up comedy at only 15 years old. Mm. By the time he was 17, he decided to legally change his name to Haywood Allen and began going by the nickname Woody. Um, He attended uh, NYU to study communications in filmmaking, but dropped out after he failed the course Motion Picture Production. Well, you need that to (laughs) be involved in the movie, so okay. Um, He began his career by mailing jokes to several Broadway writers who began purchasing them from him and sending him checks in the mail for the ones that they used in their scripts. Oh, nice. Which is just like such a bizarre thing. I've never heard that before. (laughs) So that's what he did. Um, When he was 19, he was invited to join the NBC Writers Development Program. 
Mm-hmm. Um, he went from there to writing for The Ed Sullivan Show and then for Sid Caesar with Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner, and Neil Simon. Oh, nice. So comedy, he was always uh, among good comedy company. Yeah. One thing that people say of him of this time is like he was insatiable for working. Like hmm. he could not stop working. Hmm. He would just like sit down and write jokes like for 15 hours a day, hmm. basically. Wow. In addition to writing for others, he also began creating his own stand-up routines, becoming a regular in the Greenwich Village uh, alongside other Greenwich Village newcomers, Lenny Bruce, Mike Nichols and Elaine May, Joan Rivers, George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Dick Cavett, Bill Cosby, and Mort Saul. So this is sort of like the first group of people who were doing stand-up comedy, Mm -hmm. um, because this is sort of when stand-up comedy is born Mm -hmm. in the mid-60s to early 70s. -hmm. Unfortunately, it's filled with a lot of people who abuse their power later in their <laughs> life uh, as they, I mean, as with anything that like you're a pioneer of, the power tends to get to you. <laughs> um, in the mid 60s, he began writing plays that started being produced on Broadway, the second of which played again Sam, starred himself and Diane Keaton. During this production, they became romantically involved and were together a little over a year. Oh. Then he decided to start producing and writing his own films that started out as mostly slapstick comedy and biting satire, very similar to his stand-up routines. Uh. Um, And a lot of people credit him with, like, the style of today's stand-up comedy. Like, what he was doing was very different from what some of those other people were doing, Mm -hmm. like Bill Cosby or, or Richard Pryor or Mike Nichols and Elaine May. They're all their brands were all very different, mm-hmm. um, but his you could say is very similar to what comedians have sort of landed on today. Gotcha. Uh, he began a collaboration with writer Marshall Brickman, who ended up writing four scripts with Alan, including Annie Hall. Um, he also continued his collaboration throughout his career with Diane Keaton. Um, up to this point in his, like up to this point in like modern day, they have made a total of eight films together. Wow. Um, Annie Hall originally began as a murder mystery. Oh, that would have been so fun. Um, of course, he did end up making Manhattan Murder Mystery with uh, Diane Keaton later yeah. on. <laughs> but Annie Hall quickly changed into the will-they-won't-they they rom-com, uh, partly inspired by his own relationship with Diane Keaton, um, whose actual birth name was Diane Hall. Oh. Mm. <laughs> Um, she later said that the character was, quote, an affable version of herself, quote, semi-articulate, dreamed of being a singer, and suffered from insecurity. So mm-hmm. those are the things she was saying were like her. Gotcha. Brickman felt that as Alan aged, he was becoming more introspective and philosophical, and that made the story grow more serious as a story of two people and their wants and desires and thoughts about life and worries about death. Alan admitted that while they were working on this film, he had to, quote, sacrifice some of the laughs for a story about human beings. Mm. Because a lot of his early movies are, there's not much humanity to them. They're like pure comedy. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a very strong break from the norm Mm. so far for him. Well, and I would say it's a pretty strong break in general. Right. With a movie that is considered a comedy to still have a lot of like, Gravitas. Yeah. Yeah. Allen and Brickman sent the screenplay back and forth until they felt it was worthy of uh, being produced, and they finally approached United Artists for the $4 million to make it. United Artists agreed to make the film, and other hiring and casting began. 
Um, Diane Keaton, of course, was the only person considered for the role of Annie since it was written for her and mm-hmm. like kind of about her. Ms. Hall. Um, they had so much fun making the film. Uh, they started with the lobster scene uh, <laughs> in which they just like couldn't stop laughing and poking fun at each other. Um, they were super good friends yeah. still while they were making this. <laughs> Um, they improvised a lot of lines in the movie constantly Very that made clearly. it into the cut. Yeah. They ended up continuing filming periodically over the next 10 months all around New York City. They kept a lot of the film a secret from press and others who began calling the film the new Woody Allen film, uh, which is kind of what his movies tend to be called while he's making them. Uh, he doesn't usually do like fake names. Gotcha. They really had trouble coming up with an official title for the film because they just couldn't think of like a catchy title mm-hmm. of a way to describe the film. They called the film for a while anhedonia, which is a word that means like like you can't experience pleasure, basically. <laughs> so that was kind of the idea behind the film also, <laughs> and they wanted to call it that. But a lot of people were like, well, nobody knows what that means. Yeah, it's going to be Nobody hard. knows how to pronounce it. It's confusing, yeah. Um, they also wanted to call it It Had to Be Jew from the famous yes. line in the film. <laughs> um, he wanted to call it simply Anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> um, then he got to Annie and Alvy, which I feel like would have been a cute name. Sure. And then uh, finally, Annie Hall. Yeah, it's, I think it's interesting that they make her the center point of it. Um. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is... And we were talking about this a lot with 500 Days of Summer and comparing these two movies. It is all about her. like It's his perspective on her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it sets you up for that. Like thinking, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to think about this character yeah. through this whole thing. Yeah. And like see her through his eyes. See her doing this thing that's affecting him. Right. You know. Yeah. Brickman was pretty disappointed by the first cut of the film, uh, which was assembled by Ralph Rosenblum. Um, He said that the two-hour and 20-minute film was, quote, the surrealistic and abstract adventures of a neurotic Jewish comedian who was reliving his highly flawed life and in the process satirizing much of our culture, a visual monologue, a more sophisticated and more philosophical version of Take the Money and Run, which is one of his early films. Mm. So apparently that cut was pretty bad and it sounds way too long. It does sound too long. It does sound too long. Brickman found it, quote, non-dramatic and ultimately uninteresting, a kind of cerebral exercise. Ah, uh, yeah. It's hard when you have someone who it's so much of their perspective and their thoughts on life. You're yeah. kind of like forced to just sit there and like philosophize with them. And that isn't always enjoyable. Well, and at that point in time, the film was entirely non-linear very very similar to how 500 days of summer actually is Uh Um, but they couldn't figure out because when you're thinking about memory memory usually is non-linear it's coming back to you in little pieces and you see things differently than how it happened and then you realize that later so you have both pieces of the same memory and yeah totally and so that is what the film was originally um but they couldn't figure out how to communicate the time to people. Yeah. Um, of course, 500 Days of Summer. Sorry, I'm going to keep mentioning it because it's very, very similar. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, has title cards. <laughs> <laughs> it's a way simpler way to just get the job done. Yeah. So they ended up re-editing it to be more linear. Gotcha. 
also, I'm a big uh, advocate for less is more. And right. You ha- you have way more of an impact when it's a 90 minute movie than mm-hmm. when it's a two out ho- two hours and 20 minute movie. Yeah. Um, and it became a lot less of a think piece. It became more oh, okay. about the relationship, which is so much more accessible. I I mean, I can't express how important I think comedy is to communicating to people. Yeah. Well, and apparently Diane Keaton did not enter the film in the original cut until 40 minutes into the film. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) His monologue, they decided at the beginning of the film to cut down to six minutes. Oh, my gosh. So it was very long in the opening in the first cut of the film. So Rosenblum recalled that Alan, quote, had no hesitation about trimming away as much of the first 20 minutes in order to establish Keaton more quickly. Mm. So as they realized in calling the film Annie Hall, they had to get to Annie Hall. (laughs) (laughs) Um, According to Alan, quote, I didn't sit down with Marshall Brickman and say, we're going to write a picture about a relationship. I mean, the whole concept of the picture changed as we were cutting it. Interesting. And I feel like part of that is probably because it was going to be a murder mystery. So it was more thinky. <laughs> it was more like cerebral. There was this weird relationship in it that was Who like, got murdered? No, not neither of them. It was some random person. Why? And it was supposed to happen right after they didn't see the Bergman film. Gotcha. So in between when they were going to the different theaters. Okay. When the film premiered, of course, it was met with almost universal critical acclaim. It was a, I think people were so excited about it, like film people, because Mm. it was like higher art than what he had been doing. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is why, more than anything, I think that's why it became so popular. Because he was just known as this person who was kind of immature. He was a comedian who just did satire. Mm. He was a pretty cerebral comedian. Mm-hmm. So, like, it was a very much like putting your audience down. Yeah. All of which you can understand when you watch his films. <laughs> uh, he does not think highly of other people besides himself. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then this felt so different from what he did. And... Diane Keaton was seen as such a like a breath of fresh air. Yeah, yeah. In the mix of that, um, and like somebody who stood up to him too. Yeah, because he was not the kind of person who you would stand up to, right? Because well, he could just put you down, right? It's hard to find a counterpoint for someone like that, and obviously, it's become a trope because right. of this movie and because of this relationship. In, and I mean. If, for better or for worse, because it's been exploited a lot, you know. Yeah. This is the birth of our uh, beloved Manic, Manic Pixie, Pixie Dream Girl. <laughs> <laughs> Whom uh, women throughout the ages have been accused of being. Not naming names. But um, it's, yeah, it's really lovely. I mean, it's probably my favorite part. My favorite thing to come out of the movie is just that relationship. Because I think it's a very authentic relationship. And I think it proves that that's something valuable, too. That, mm-hmm. like humbling yourself and allowing yourself to feel for another person and to be brought down is really good. Yeah. Um, After the film premiered, he said this quote, which I thought was interesting. Quote, I wanted it to be about real people, real problems, besetting some fairly neurotic characters trying to exist in male-female relationships in America in 1977. It turns out to be more serious than anything I've ever tried before. Mm. Which, again, is why everybody was, like, so enamored by it. Yeah. I mean, he just totally changed 
his whole dynamic yeah. as an artist with yeah. this film. And I think part of it is because of Marshall Brickman, too. Sure. Um, a lot of people forget, I think, that... He's a writing partner for yeah. this. Yeah. And they wrote four films together, yeah. and they're four of his, like, more highly regarded films as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. And, uh, and, I mean, his films with Diane Keaton are also, like, some of his most highly regarded as well. Sure, yeah. They just had a great partnership, working relationship, and friendship. And chemistry, it seems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, like, their relationship didn't sour their working relationship. Yeah, that's good. As opposed to many mm-hmm. other people in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, so that's what I have to share about that. Of course, it is such a pivotal moment in rom-com history. Totally. And film history. Yeah. I mean, it births kind of the new era of rom-coms yeah. through the 70s and 80s. Without it, I mean, we wouldn't have When Harry Met Sally. Yes. Huh. What would the world be without <laughs> When Harry Met Sally? <laughs> you know, I, it, I mean, a lot of people feel very influenced by this movie. William Golding, of course, is super inter- it, totally. like influenced by this movie. Yeah. Um, Rob Reiner is super influenced by this movie. Akira Kurosawa, uh, <laughs> famed Japanese director, says it's one of his favorite movies, which is like very funny because his movies are nothing like this. <laughs> well, <laughs> inspiration comes from many places. And of course, then... You know, we get to more of the modern rom-com, like the indie rom-com wouldn't be anything without this movie either. Yeah. Well, the indie rom-com doesn't happen unless this movie happens and then we get the regular rom-com, which then burns out and then we start getting our indie rom-coms, which is then Kristen comes onto the scene watching movies (laughs) as a 13, 14 year old and is highly impressionable and is obsessed. Well, and it's like sets the tone for like these characters are neurotic and they are dealing with their own mental health yeah. and so that makes them quirky mm-hmm. and and it's as much about their relationship with themselves as, as it is with the other person and their relationship to the world and like fitting all of those pieces together and like the ways that it does work out and doesn't work out and mm-hmm the sacrifices you have to make and if you're going to make them and the flaws that you have and if you're going to confront them and the flaws the other person has and if that's going to stop your relationship. Well, and it's such an interesting timepiece too because we were talking about this compared to 500 Days of Summer and how like flopped in a way the gender roles are in this film compared to that one where like in this era of quirky women in the seventies, she dresses very masculine. She's wearing menswear. She's wearing yeah. like streetwear. She plays sports. Yeah. She drives a car. He doesn't drive a car. He doesn't own a car. Yeah. He doesn't play sports. He's very like uncoordinated and weird and you know. Yeah. And then that trope kind of flops in the modern day when, you know, feminism has run its course up to the early 2000s and Zoe Deschanel is now the quirky one because she's hyper feminine yeah. and mm-hmm. like just loves her Gordon. vintage stuff yeah. and she <laughs> loves her records and she sings and knows music yeah and she's so cutesy and and then you know that leaves Joseph Gordon-Levitt to be much more masculine yeah. he and is... she becomes the breath of fresh air she becomes the right. relief from the other people in the movie mm-hmm. because this style of version of femininity is not seen elsewhere right whereas diane keaton is the same thing she's a breath of fresh air because this style of femininity isn't seen in the other people in the movie Mm -hmm. well and it's funny the other thing that i love about this style of rom-com is it 
they all have to have the really, really weird, wacky best friend guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, he's hilarious in this one. He's so weird. He's so weird. <laughs> and they're all like that. Yeah. I mean, even going back to Roman Holiday. It's the same plot. You know, uh, will they, won't they? They don't in the end. She's the manic pixie dream girl. Yeah. She's... He has his eye on her and he there's something about her. And... Yeah. And again, there's still a wackadoodle, <laughs> like, third wheel who just, like, fits into the plot in a weird way. Uh, Even with, you know, same with 500 Days of you Summer. You got Matthew Gray Goobler off yeah. to the side. Doing something weird. He's deeply in love with his woman. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it, it's it's just a very, like, fun installment in this legacy of mm-hmm. this kind and style of movie. Yeah. And without it, you know, it's just so important in this style. You know, the same way that, like, you know, your Ben-Hur and your Lawrence of Arabia is important to the epic. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I respect it. This is obviously the style that I'm inclined towards. So this is a very big moment in mm-hmm. my personal history. <laughs> but yeah for sure yeah so that's what i have to say about that one great Uh, and that brings us to our final segment of thanking the academy for Mm -hmm. things relating to this film or these people or this time in history um and i will start by thanking the academy for diane keaton okay I really like her in this film. I think she's super fun. I think it's a great performance for what it needs to be. Like, her performance in the film is exactly what is necessary to make this film work. Mm-hmm. Um, she's just, like, the perfect foil to his, like, very abrasive, mm-hmm. very, I don't know, you know, his style of sure. performing. Totally, totally. And it's interesting talking in like how it fits in through all these rom-com histories. It's very, very different from other characters because up to this point, this character is supposed to be like so sweet, so feminine, Mm -hmm. so like glamour. Mm -hmm. Um, And also in a way decisive. Like uh I think it's an interesting way to show an indecisive kind of nervous woman because you don't really see a lot of those in movies, especially the older movies we've watched. There are mm-hmm. women who are like maybe weepy or like emotional, I guess is the yeah. way to say it, but they're not like indecisive and kind of stuck the way that she well, is. Well, because like Audrey Hepburn is so poised. Like she yes. doesn't do anything mm-hmm. that she's confused about. Right. Yeah. But I mean, watching this movie, I know a thousand Annie Halls. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, it's a very, very accessible woman. Yeah. And she got her Academy Award. She did. She did. Um, I would like to thank the Academy. And I should have mentioned this more when I was doing my session, but whatever. We're going to do a whole archives episode about it. But I would like to thank the Academy for recognizing the achievement that is Star Wars. Yeah. There is a world in which the Academy does not care about this. That's true. And I'm so grateful that it is recognized as a good piece of work because of the cultural impact it had. I mean, it's one of the biggest movies of all history, the most mm-hmm. impactful movies. Um, changes so much about what's about to happen in the 80s. Oh, yeah. You know, time. I mean, especially the future of movie making. And of course, it's not unprecedented. Things have been leading up to this. We've got a bunch of Stanley Kubrick stuff that has brought us here. And, mm-hmm. you know. Well, and luckily, the Academy has awarded... Pouring big money into big effects and mm-hmm. big 
epics. Like that was a staple of the Academy for a while. And so it's nice that that happened so that they could continue recognizing these. But I just think it's impressive. It won the most awards this night. It won six uh, more than any other movie. They brought the characters on stage. They knew it was a celebrated movie. They had people from the movie who were not nominated presenting Mm -hmm. awards. Um, Like, it was just a really big cultural deal and they acknowledged that and like participated in it, mm-hmm. which is something that I would love the Academy to do more of. Um, I, I, while as much as like, I don't necessarily want like a Marvel world to be, you know, super <laughs> combined with the Academy. I still think it's important to recognize like what is culturally successful and important and relevant and like making a huge mark. I wish that like the hunger games had had a bigger effect on the Mm. Academy or like movies like that, that were like very culture defining for the period of time that it is and set the stage for what's going to happen in other movies. So Mm -hmm. anyways, I'm glad the Academy got it right with this one. I would like to give my final thanks to the rescuers. Such a great Disney film. Yeah. A classic, amazing art in it very stylized very stylized which we love good music yes sweet sweet story yeah it was i mean it was one of my favorites as a child yeah one of the most important like childhood movies to me and you and i obviously both have connected over it Mm -hmm. and and it is the namesake (laughs) of our little pretty penny oh penny penny So thanks to the rescuers. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. We love it. My final thanks is uh for the indie comedy. Ah, uh, yes. I my literal favorite genre of movie. All of my yeah. favorite movies are in that realm, whether it's a rom com or a regular com, it's the best. Yeah. I, I think it's just it's the most impactful movie for me. Mm-hmm. I love that you get the breath of fresh air with the comedy. I love how anxiety focused these movies are. I love that they're about your flaws and deciding whether you're going to become a better person or not, whether you're going to reach out to that other person or not. I mean, my favorite movie is Little Miss Sunshine. My other favorites are 500 Days of Summer. And, you know, it's just, it's the best genre for me. Mm -hmm. And I thank you to Annie Hall. Annie Hall is not my favorite movie. I don't love Annie Hall. But I respect it. I like the movie part of it. I think that what it does is so great. I think the constructs in it are so great. I love it when they break out and they talk to the camera and then the other guy joins in and talks to the camera and then they grab the other guy from behind the podium and he talks to the camera. I love that stuff. I love that innovation. I love that it gets to be weird. what's inside your brain. Yeah. All that stuff. It's just the best. Animated sequence. Yes. Ugh. All that is amazing i love that stuff and i'm so glad again that the academy recognized it i feel like this is one of the years where they get that stuff right well and it's so few and far between that they recognize a comedy and the ones that have won up to this point are very very good i mean they are phenomenal yeah there are a few others that could have won Roman Holiday. Um, and there are a few others in the future that probably should have won Little Miss Sunshine. Um, but uh, yeah, we love a comedy that wins. Yes, we do. We love it. Uh, mm-hmm. Because it also, I mean, it takes a lot of skill and talent to create a film that is like understated comedy. It has to have good dialogue. Yeah. It has to have good writing. It has to have great characters. It has to have really intentional, like, understated acting. 
you know, the same sort of things that all the other movies need, but just in a different way. And we don't say this just because that's what we write and make. <laughs> no. What? <laughs> and, uh, you know, to the horror fans out there, y- your films are not as awarded as they should be either. So Yeah, we in solidarity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Anyways. Uh, that's what we have to say for today. <laughs> Quite a lot to say. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and thanks for listening and joining us today. Yeah. And then join us next week because we will bring you a new Academy Archives and it will be all about Star Wars. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinger. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.